Well, uh, let us, uh, let's spend some time in, in prayer today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the good shepherd. And we hear that metaphor of sheep and we think how cute and fluffy they are, and they really are. But they also are not very smart and really need a shepherd. Lord Jesus, you were so brilliant that you knew how to take the ordinary metaphors of everyday life and to teach the most profound spiritual truths. Lord, we continue to need you to be our good shepherd. Lord, as a humanity, we are so hell-bent so often. We pride ourselves on great accomplishments. And there are accomplishments, Lord, that we do with gifts and common grace that you have given to us. Gifts and abilities and interests, Lord, that can be leveraged and used for life and wholeness and goodness. And yet, Lord, so often we leverage those for harm and destruction and for self-centered ways without thought to others. Lord, we, we see it happen on great grand scales in countries where war and conflict and oppression and violence erupt, and we rightly condemn those. And yet, Lord, we can so easily overlook how we can be, express bitterness, misuse our power in, within our own homes and neighborhoods. And Lord, we need your peace. We need you, the Prince of Peace, Lord, to teach us your way of peace. And Lord, as we open up your word today, we pray that you would guide us for your glory. Amen. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to all. The lyrics to this now famous Christmas carol were written, written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on Christmas Day, 1863. What you may not know is the story behind it. For Longfellow, peace Peace felt like it had been snuffed out forever two years earlier when his wife Frances died. She had been sealing envelopes. In those days, you did it with hot wax and a candle. But her clothes caught on fire. Frances had been burned beyond recovery, and she died the next day. And Henry also had been burned badly. He had tried to help save her. And his burns were so bad, he couldn't even go to her funeral. On Christmas the following year, he recorded the following line in his journal. A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. He grew a beard to cover the scars on his face, but the inner scars he could not cover. In spring of 1863, Longfellow suffered another blow when his son Charlie decided against his father's wishes to run off to join the Civil War. Longfellow feared for his son's future, and rightly so. In one letter home, Charlie described the horror of seeing shells ripping and tearing his men to pieces. 
In November, that same year, a bullet went through Charlie too, just nicking his spine. And Longfellow traveled to Washington to retrieve his injured son from the hospital. And when they arrived home on December 8th, a grim Longfellow began the long process of trying to nurse his son back to health. The adversity of that daily venture challenged his resolve until on Christmas Day he heard the bells ringing from the church belfries, the towers where the bells hung. And he heard in them a message from God that peace would come again. And it inspired him to go home and to write the lyrics to what we now know as Christmas bells. The people in Luke's day were undoubtedly curious about the story behind the songs that had become very familiar to them. Like Zechariah's song that he records for us in Luke chapter 1. I encourage you to turn there. It is, as we shall see, a song of great praise for what God did in the past and what he was about to do through the one sent from God to prepare the way for the great Savior that they had been hoping and praying for for a very, very long time. Let's uh, read Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 67. His father Zechariah, that is John, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has stirred up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the sun, rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the land and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel as John the Baptist. Like Longfellow's poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, Zechariah's song was birthed out of great adversity. Luke tells us earlier in chapter 1 about the great pain that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth shared. Their deep, unfulfilled longing for a child. Elizabeth will describe it in verse 25 of chapter 1 as a public disgrace. And it gives us a window into the pain that they carried year after year after year. Their personal unfulfilled longing for a child was matched by their collective national longing for a savior to deliver Israel from the public disgrace and humiliation they endured at the hands of the empire, oh, an empire that claimed to have established peace on earth. And so they prayed. Every day they prayed, personally and collectively at the temple. 
You can see in the picture of the temple there, the courts and the part with the circle, that's the holy place where a priest would go. Only a priest was allowed into there, and there was an altar of incense. And as the incense would go and the smoke would rise up and come out of the, of the doors and stuff as well, the people would be gathered around, and that would be a symbol of the incense of their prayers with a sweet smell going up to God. And they did this each day. And the priest on duty went behind the curtain to resupply the altar with fresh incense so that it would be rising up continually with their prayers to God. And so it was appropriate that one who had such a deep personal longing for a child should also be carrying the nation's deep longing for the Messiah. And he did that into his time of prayer. Now, given that this was, Luke will tell us, Zechariah's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, he was drawn by lot among the priests to go into the holy place to do this and to lead his people in prayer, it is reasonable to assume that he had prepared for this moment more than he had prepared for anything in his life. And yet, he was totally unprepared for what happened next. In verse 11, we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. I mean, who wouldn't be? And yet, on this occasion, Zechariah is told explicitly, your prayer has been heard. Not, yeah, I hear you, but I've heard you, and I'm doing what you asked. I wonder if he wondered uh, which prayer. That is, his personal prayer for a child, which I'm sure him and Elizabeth had been praying, and, or his public prayer for the nation. And the answer was not an either or, but a both. For they were connected far more deeply than Zechariah could ever have imagined. Now, virtually everyone who, is ex who has or is expecting a child has big hopes and dreams for them. I know my dad hoped that one of us would take over the family farm. Didn't happen. But uh, even Zechariah was surprised by how high God's hopes and dreams were for the son that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, he said, would, that they would have. The angel said, he will be a joy and a delight to you. And they're like, yes. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Notice, John will be a delight to them personally, but also to many others, because he will be a prophet. Now you need to know that between the, old, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the pages of the New Testament is nearly 400 years. There's no prof prophetic books written during that time because most of the Jews believed that the prophet's voice had gone silent. And they often call it the silent years. It was very turbulent, but there was no living prophet. And uh, that's longer than Canada's ongoing drought in the soccer field, right? I know, there's, oh boy. But 400 years, I hope it doesn't take that long. Now, John would be a very special prophet, the angel said. Like the great 
prophet Elijah who appeared in the Old Testament at Israel's lowest point. And he appeared at that time to make ready a people for the Lord's arrival. God was going to do a turnaround. And the critical importance of preparing people for the Lord's coming can be seen in Zechariah himself. The angel of the Lord comes and he's not ready even for an answer to the prayer. He's living in doubt. You see, Zechariah had been prepared to lead the people in prayer, but he was not prepared for how personally and dramatically the Lord was actually planning to answer his prayers. As we see in his response in, in verse 18, he's kind of mumbling, I mean, how, how is this really possible? It never ceases to amaze me how shocking Zechariah's doubt, it seems normal to me, but how shocking it must have been to the angel Gabriel. Gabriel says, like, I stand in the Lord's presence. And I remember years ago, it dawned on me, thinking of this from Zechariah, I mean, from the angel Gabriel's perspective. He's been there since the beginning of time. Has he ever seen one of God's promises not come true? Never. Perfect record. How could you even question? I think he's thinking from his perspective. But this year, I found myself wondering as I reread this story was, why was Zechariah, in response, given the silent treatment? You will not speak because you doubted. I often thought of his silence as kind of punishment, a curse. And I began to see, I think it's a cure. I think it's a prescription. It's a silent treatment. He was given gestational time, along with his wife Elizabeth. Time to rethink what his natural response had been to the, to the message of the Lord. Like, why was it that his belief in the power of God had shrunk, had atrophied, had shriveled, so that his instinctive response was, I, I don't believe it. Rather than, you know, God is bigger than my biggest problem. Our, uh, our community group met this week and we were sharing Christmas memories around the table. And there was one person shared how when they were a kid, on, on Christmas Eve, the wood stove in their place uh, had exploded. The fire, local fire department came. It was just a disaster. But the next day, the fire, some of the volunteers and people showed up with gifts, more gifts than they had ever had before, with meal and everything. It went from being a Christmas disaster to the biggest blessing, a highlight real moment. It's like, do we believe God can do that? We need stories to remind us, yes, he can. Well, Zechariah's silent treatment or his gestational time was complete only when it came time, not when the son was born, but when it came time to name their son. And I wondered, why that time? Well, you see, the normal practice uh, for an only son especially was to carry on his dad's name. But the angel had clearly told him back in verse 13, you're, gonna, you're supposed to call him John. Uh, John, that name means Yahweh, that is the Lord is gracious. And the naming ceremony happened at the circumcision on the eighth day. 
And there, you see, Zechariah is given another chance to exercise his faith. Will he believe the word of the Lord and follow through with it? Will he exercise his faith? And this time, he does so in dramatic fashion. To everyone's astonishment, he has to use sign language, sign writing on a, on a uh, I don't know what they wrote on, piece of stone. Uh, and yet, Zechariah, he doesn't just speak when suddenly his mouth is opened. It says that, Luke says, he is filled with the Spirit and he prophesies. Prophesies. Zechariah's own story with his nine months of silence is suddenly relieved at the naming of his child and it reflects and resonates with God breaking his 400-year-old silence. Prophecy suddenly after 400 years of silence. And so in Zechariah's song, God is breaking his own 400-year silence. Isn't that amazing? Well, they were amazed at the miracles associated with Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. Verse 66 says, Everyone who heard this was wondering about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now, every child is a bundle of potential. I read recently of an elderly teacher who always bowed to his class before his lessons. And when he was asked why, he answered, because you never know what these students might become. Hmm. In John's case, it now seemed clear to many that he was destined for greatness. And yet, Zechariah's prophetic song does not begin by celebrating the greatness of his son's birth. He will talk about what his child is going to be in verses 76 and following, yes. But Zechariah begins with wholehearted praise to God. Because he has come to his people and redeemed them. His greatest concern is for the whole nation. He has come. Sometimes it's called visiting. God has visited its people. The word in Greek means to seek out with concern. Pastoral visit, kind of. It's like a good shepherd seeking and saving his sheep. That's the imagery behind God's coming and how he has come. God's shepherding heart for his people is collectively what pours out of him first praise for that. And he, he praises, or some of the translations say blessing. That means to say something good about someone. In the funeral, we have a eulogy, eulogos. That's the word in Greek used here, saying something good about God in this case. God is so good, Zechariah says, for having come to save his people as they hoped and believed that he would. And Zechariah in his song reviews God's history of goodness through a variety of Old Testament metaphors and images. Many of them are Exodus images, as well as the the year of Jubilee, the 50th year when everything reverted back. If you were a slave, you were suddenly liberated. If you had lost your property, suddenly you were able to go back to it. And Zechariah's point that what God is beginning to do through John was the fulfillment of his past promises. It's a replay, Zechariah does, a replay and an expansion of kind of God's greatest hits and highlight real moments in history. And Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal highlight real moment with the birth of their son, you see, was much 
part of a much bigger national highlight reel moment. Much of the salvation imagery Zechariah uses is what we call political imagery. You know, it talks about the house of David. That is the king of David, his, his, uh, his ongoing dynasty. It talks about salvation from our enemies in the hand of those who hate us, and, and we could go on. But as commentator uh, N.T. Wright and others point out, there are signs that Zechariah's vision goes beyond merely a realigning of political powers. God's mercy verse 72. The forgiveness of sins, verse 77. The rescue from death itself, verse 79. All of this points to a deeper and wider meaning of salvation. As N.T. Wright says, Luke is preparing us to see that God, in fulfilling the great promises of the Old Testament, is going beyond a merely this worldly salvation and opening the door to a whole new world in which sin and death themselves will be dealt with. Reminded of the line in Isaac Watts' famous carol, Joy to the World. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known. How far? Far as the curse is found. That's the extent of God's restorative work. And when John grew up and began his public ministry, and peace blast him, who are you? He described himself using the language of Isaiah 40 that Zechariah alludes to here. Zechariah, I mean Isaiah 40 talks about the voice. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight his paths. Build a highway so that everybody can come without any obstacles and come and experience the goodness of God. That's, that's the vision. That's my job, John would say. I don't know, that's what God called me to. And John would call people to repent. To repent is to turn away from your direction and what you're doing to God's way. And to undergo a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A washing away, a forgiveness, a new start, a new life. And God's gracious shepherd-like coming to save his people is prompted, Zechariah says, by his tender mercy. The word, uh, Greek word, splachna, it's not very, uh, it's, it's the inward parts of the human being. We'd say the guts. You know when you say, you kind of, it really got me in the gut, in the depth of the motions, that's similar. But it's also for them the place of the deepest feelings of compassion. In other words, God's tender feelings or compassion are what prompted him to come and do everything that he is doing and that, will, and that he will do for his people. You know, we sometimes say, oh, grandpa's an old softy. Uh, God, that's a reflection of something, of, of this compassion, deep compassion of God and the willingness that he is go, to go for any lengths for his people. In verses 78, the end of verse 78 and verse, beginning of verse 79, it speaks not just the dawn of a new day, this sun, the sun will, light will rise on you, is, is talking about the dawn of a whole new age. Just as Isaiah had prophesied, the people walking in darkness have or will see a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, a new age. 
And New Testament writers like Matthew describe this as being fulfilled in Jesus' coming. In Matthew 4, 16, for example. But Jesus himself, when he grew up, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus was the one that John pointed to as the truly great one. That he said, by comparison, he couldn't even hold a candle to this, to this great light. Jesus is the light of the world and the way to peace. True peace. To have our, our feet guided into the path of peace, his song ends with. It's a pictorial way of describing holistic salvation, all-encompassing. It reflects the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is God's all-encompassing dream for the world. It's often described in Eden-like images where everything is right. And again, in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, again, it has these Eden-like images. That's shalom. And it was to bring this shalom to a broken world that Jesus came the first time and that he will come again to restore all things. Listen to Jesus' own words from John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. By that he was probably talking about Rome, which said we have brought peace to the world and all of the oppression that came with it. No, I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus invites one and all to come and experience the wonder of his peace. The peace that Zechariah knew it's coming, but that we can experience because Jesus has come. I was talking to uh, our associate pastor, Yosef, this week. We've had some great meetings, and he was I was talking about what I'm going to be doing on uh, some of the scripture reading that's going to be happening on Sunday, Isaiah 9, and, uh, and, the, and the theme of the wonder of his peace. And he said, you know, when I came to Canada and, uh, as a refugee and I was in prison and I was given a Bible, he said, I was reading it and the first verse I memorized was from Isaiah 9. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And that peace eventually came into Yosef's life as he opened his heart to the Prince of Peace. Jesus invites us to do that. Jesus also asks us to share the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace with others. It's reminded of a story. Missionary Harold Vogelar once saw a striking painting of an Egyptian Muslim uh, by an Egyptian Muslim artist by the name of Muhammad. Muhammad had painted a portrait of a, of a powerful young man who held a sword in one hand and a dove in the other. And Harold asked Muhammad about the meaning of what he had painted. And the artist told him that the dashing figure symbolized Islam, which always came offering peace but if it was not accepted, carried a sword to impose Allah's will on society. And Harold asked Muhammad if he had ever considered painting 
a picture of a man who held the dove of peace with two hands. Muhammad thought about that for a long time. And then he replied, I would have to paint a picture of Jesus. Hmm. Friends, there is a good reason why the New Testament calls the Christian message the gospel of peace. In Ephesians 6.5. For as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, He, that is Christ, is our peace. He has made the two, he's talking about the hostilities, the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself, in his crucified body, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, his, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I invite you, Jesus invites you to embrace his invitation to experience true peace in your heart. And also consider how you can share that peace with someone else this week. In words, in actions, to spread the wonder of his peace. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, you are so patient, you are so purposeful, because your goal is not to restore a few things here and there, it's not to do a little renovation of some of the places, it is to transform all of creation. Lord, that is the biggest restoration project it is too daunting for, to even consider, and yet you have taken it on yourself. You have paid the ultimate price coming as one of us to know that you are not a greenhouse God just, you know, separated from all the adversities of life, but one who has come to be with us, to pay the debt and price, to take upon yourself the sin of the whole world, to wipe our slate clean personally, so that we might walk in a new life, that we might know the wonder of your peace. And Lord, may we experience that, and may we also share that good news with others. Amen.